0: So yes, last time uh, in the book of Revelation uh, for us in this series, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 uh, through 22. Good to see you all this morning. Happy New Year to everybody. This is the right way to start it, right? Bible's open, hands raised, worshiping Jesus for who he is and what he's done for us. This is amazing. So, so glad to be able to share this day with you guys. We don't always get a New Year's Day service. So this is awesome. So it's like some of you guys um, gathered with family uh, over these, over these uh, holidays, over the past few weeks. Some of the same stories come out, right? This is kind of like family lore. Somebody's going to end up telling that story uh, on you that you did when you were five years old, right? It's just going to happen. This happens to my uncle every year. Every time we get together... Uh, on the Brandon side, uh, there's this story that comes up where my uncle uh, was a little kid and he was learning how to do things at the breakfast table. And, uh, and he got out the milk and he was prepared to pour himself a bowl of cereal. And uh, clearly it was a little bit too large for him to handle. So my, my grandmother is stepping in and trying to manage things, trying to make sure that things don't go south in a hurry. And he says, no, 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 I've got it. I've got a special way i got a special way of pouring the milk. So he proceeds to lift the milk. And, of course, the milk goes all over the table, all over everything. My uncle's special way. It was, it was a beautiful moment, apparently something that we, that we're, that we remember for, for generations to come. Uh, but much, much like uh, uh, my uncle, at times we think, you know what, I got this. I don't need any help. I am in good shape. And this leads to one of the most dangerous scenarios that any of the seven churches faced in Revelation. Not from false teachers, but from their own smug self-sufficiency. So let's pray and we'll read God's word together. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the reminder that you are coming soon. Lord, we don't know what soon looks like, but we pray that you would use your word this morning to to season, to prepare our hearts, Lord, that you would open us up to the work that you want to do in us this year. Uh, Lord, the work of sanctification has not been completed in our hearts. We pray that you would use your word this morning to show us who Jesus is. Help us to follow you, Lord, and set our hearts free uh, from the sin that we've allowed um, to to take root there. I pray that you would Bless everyone this morning. Help everybody to stay awake. Some of us were up late last night. Help us to stay clear and focused. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let's go. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. To the churches. All right, so in verse 14, we need to talk a little bit about Laodicea and the church there. Laodicea probably is the fruit of, of the Apostle Paul's ministry. During the sec- his second missionary journey, he stays for several years in Ephesus. We talked about that at the beginning of the series, how Paul taught daily in a place called the House of Tyrannus. If you want to look that up, that's in Acts 19, verses 9 through 10. Uh, but Paul invested while he was while he was there. He invested in the lives of some men that he intended to send out to do the work of planting churches and raising up uh, people uh, for uh, for Jesus' sake. Some of those men were Timothy, uh, Titus, and in the case of Laodicea, there's a man called Epaphras. And Epaphras is probably the church planter of of several churches, including. Uh, This church in Laodicea. Where do we get that from? We get it from the book of Colossians. Let's look at this real quickly. Colossians 1, 7. uh, Paul is speaking uh, to the Colossians about the gospel. And he says, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. So Epaphras is is the planter of this church in Colossae. Then uh, in uh, Colossians 4, verses 12 through 13, we get a bigger picture here. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. So Epaphras has kind of has done triple duty here. It seems like he has planted all three of these churches. Uh, let's get that slide up if we've got the slide uh, just so you can kind of see where these churches are. Do we have that, that map? There we go. All right, so you can see there the churches that we've talked about so far. Uh, we covered Ephesus, Smyrna, up to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. I feel a little bit like the weatherman here. Um, <clears throat> we've got um, Laodicea down there in the right-hand, uh, bottom right-hand corner. And then you've got Herapolis and Colossae. So you can see those three uh, churches have a, have a geographic um, proximity uh, there. And so um, Epaphras apparently spent some time in Ephesus. He heard the gospel. His life was changed. And he knew that he had to share the message with everybody that he met. And so he was commissioned by Paul to plant churches in this area. And apparently, according to Colossians 4, they also traded letters. So when, uh, when Laodicea, Um, got a letter, they would send that letter also to Colossae and say, hey, look, see what Paul wrote to us. And Colossae would send their letter to Laodicea and Herapolis. So there's this close connection between these uh, these, uh, three churches in this city. The next thing we need to look at is as we look at all of these letters is how Jesus describes himself in the letter. So let's look at verse 14 again. He describes himself in this way. He says, the words of the amen... The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So three descriptors here. First of which is Jesus calls himself the amen. The amen. Now that's a word that we use all of the time. It's uh, as as kind of like the, the prayer closing word, right? It's, if you don't say amen, then people are looking around and going like, are they done? Like, what, what happened here? So, but, but amen literally means truth. It means I agree with that. So um, when, you, when you see it uh, written in the Old Testament, um, in, a, in the book of Isaiah, for example, Jesus, uh, excuse me, God calls himself the God of the amen, the God of truth. Uh, so when Jesus speaks in the New Testament, when he says, verily, verily, I say unto thee, those of you who have got that, that uh, King James background, that's that word, amen, amen. Uh, Jesus is saying, this is true, this is true. And it's, it's a great thing to hear because in our culture, truth is a hard thing to come by, isn't it? There's a tremendous amount of spin in, our, in the way that we receive information out there. Everybody's got a hidden agenda in how they present that information to you. But what a relief it is, right, to know that with Jesus, there's no spin. He's going to tell you what is true. Whether you like it or not, Jesus is going to speak truth to you. Jesus also describes himself as the faithful and true witness. This is something that uh, he described himself in in uh, Revelation 1-5. So a witness is, is kind of like an ambassador. An ambassador is a, is a person who's been sent from one country to another country to, to, uh, to describe and to perpetrate the agenda of the, uh, of the sending country. So if you want to know what God is like and what the kingdom of God is like, you look at Jesus. Because he's the perfect ambassador. He is the faithful and true witness. And when you look at Jesus, again, there's no spin. The person and the message are consistent. Jesus is who he says he is, and his message aligns exactly with the way that he lives and exactly the way he thinks and feels. The third way in which Jesus describes himself is the beginning of all creation. The beginning of all creation now, this means, it doesn't mean that Jesus is the first among several created things. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first one created. We don't have to look any further than John 1 to, to, see, the, to see that that's not true. John 1, 3, all things were made through him. Not some things, all things. And without him was not anything made that was made. So your Jehovah's Witness, uh, a friend that comes to the door and knocks knocks and wants to spend some time with you talking about how Jesus was a created thing is not reading uh, their Bible correctly. So we should pay attention to what Jesus is saying because of how he has described himself. And we should also be reassured knowing that Jesus is these things, that he is the amen, that he is the faithful and true witness, and that he is the beginning of God's creation. All things were created by Jesus he is the author of all life all right so next we're going to see that our works must be useful to Jesus look at verses 15 and 16 with me our works must be useful to Jesus In saying to the latest scenes, he says I know your works you are neither cold nor hot would that you were either cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold I will spit you out of my mouth So to understand what's going on here in this passage, again, we need a little bit of background on Laodicea and the the geography that this place finds itself in. So Laodicea is one of those uh, three cities in the Lycus River Valley there in Turkey, Um, and it's it's got those other two cities, uh, Herapolis and Colossae. Now, Herapolis had hot springs wonderful springs that people could come to. If they, uh, if they had uh, ailments, they could come and they could soak in those hot springs. People would use that for bath- bathing and uh, for medicinal purposes. And then Colossae, on the other hand, had nice cool water, some of the most beautiful, coldest drinking water that you could find anywhere in that area. So you've got hot and you've got cold in the immediate area. But Laodicea had lukewarm water. ...that was being pumped into it. There was the, the closest place for them to get water was this springs that was a few miles away. And so they built these aqueducts. And you can actually see pictures of the aqueducts today. And so the water traveled through those aqueducts for miles. And, uh, and it had all of these mineral deposits in it. So by the time it got to uh, Laodicea, it's lukewarm. And you can't, you can't really drink it because of the mineral deposits... Uh, they were so bad that if, that if you drank them, you would throw up. So sorry for those of you who, who have uh, sensitive tummies this morning. I'll try not to dwell on that too much uh, so that we don't have a bunch of people running to the bathroom. Um, but, that's the, but that's the situation. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, hot water is useful. It has a use. It's profitable. Cold water has a use. It also is profitable. It brings blessing to the person Who drinks it? Jesus is telling the Laodiceans, the work that you're doing is useless. It's not good for anything. Now, I want to be clear when I say the words useful and useless here, because God doesn't need anything, right? He didn't, he didn't need for us to come this morning in order for him to continue to be glorious. It's not like he gets a, a battery recharge or something like that. Every time, you know, uh, we, we walk into the room and we praise his name, he's like, oh, I feel better. Now I can get back to doing uh, what, what my agenda was. No, God always is glorious. We cannot add anything to his glory. And yet we were created to glorify him. Look at John 15, 8 with me. You're familiar with this passage with the vine and the branches. Uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So who's the fruit for, church? It's for Jesus, right? It's for the Lord himself. So all that we do, everything in our lives is supposed to be directed towards him. Our lives are supposed to be all about the glory of God. Unfortunately, when we live for ourselves, we lose that. We lose the purpose that we were created for. You see, the church of Laodicea is not being critiqued for false doctrine. They're being critiqued because their lives are not useful for the Lord. There's no benefit. There's no fruit being born for him. There's no glory for God to enjoy. So the question we need to ask ourselves as we we look at our lives this morning here in 2023 is what glory does Jesus get from my life? What does Jesus get out of my work? How does it benefit? How does it bring him honor as I work? Is my family bearing fruit that is pleasing to him? The way that I'm conducting myself in my family. Are my relationships aimed at honoring the Lord? And does the way that I rest and recreate reflect a God-focused life? Or does it reflect a self-focused life? Jesus is warning the Laodiceans. He's saying, your works are not useful. They are not directed towards me. He says, I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. And by that, I do mean that Jesus says, I'm going to vomit you. Out of my mouth. Same Greek word there. And if he does, there's not going to be any recovery. It's just like the, the Ephesian church where Jesus says, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So there's a, there's a stern warning there. He's saying, look, there's disaster that's right in front of you. If you're not careful, you're going you're to fall into it. But the good news is that Jesus is warning them to avert a disaster. Look at John 15, 6. It's the same idea that we find there in the vine and the branches passage. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The good news is that Jesus is talking to us. The good news is that Jesus is talking to the church in Laodicea. He's saying, look, there is disaster that's about to happen, and yet... He uses the word, I'm about to. You see that, that, that uh, verb will uh, in your ESVs, probably better translated, I'm about to. I'm about to spew you out of my mouth. So we've got to ask the question, furthermore, why are, these, are, the, why are the works of the Laodiceans useless before God? What is it that they're doing wrong that is displeasing him? The issue, as always, is found in their hearts. What is the heart like that is producing such useless work? Useless works come from hearts that are independent from God. Useless works come from hearts that are independent from God. So our hearts must be then dependent on Jesus. So let's look at verses 17 and 18. Jesus is going to further lay out um, the problem are apparently busy displaying their portfolio before God. They're saying, look, look how blessed we are. If, if you read about the history of, of, of uh, this area, we recognize they were incredibly financially blessed. They had a banking and commerce center uh, that, w- that was amazing. They were able to bankroll large, um, large projects uh, for, um, for that area. Um, there, was a, there was a medical center in which they had this, this uh, eye salve that they used uh, to help people with vision problems. So there was a lot of money coming into uh, the area through that medical center. People would come from all over the place um, to have their sight restored. And then there were, uh, the, there were these um, sp- special sheep that they, um, that they tended that produced this fine, soft, Dark wool that was, that was uh, just um, amazing, uh, apparently, to, to, to weave clothes uh, from. And so they've got all of these things financially going for them. All of these resources. So many resources, in fact, that an earthquake hit the city in A.D. 60. And it leveled uh, so much of, of Laodicea. And even though they were offered money by the Roman government, they turned it down. They said, you know what? We got this. No problem. They refused the government money, and they took care of the rebuilding project by themselves. So you can imagine what this produces in the hearts of not only of this city, but also of this church. It is this hard attitude of smug self-satisfaction, an attitude that says, I got this. They may be even seeing the material things that they have as being related to their own righteousness, they begin to equate spiritual blessing with material things. Now we know, as we as we read our Bible, that God does bless uh, his his followers at times with material blessings. We see this in the Old Testament, right? Uh, how Abraham and Jacob and their flocks increased uh, as they followed the Lord. But if we only see ourselves as blessed when we have material things or have good health, we miss out on other more important categories of blessing, like holiness, growing to be more like Jesus, and fellowship with God, enjoying being with him throughout our day. The problem with Laodicea is that it was so satisfied with these material blessings that they saw no need for God himself anymore. How much like our culture is that? They thought that an abundance of gifts meant that they no longer had any need for the giver. So Jesus comes in, and he can see their real spiritual condition. He says to them, you are poor. Now, on the outside, they're lending money. Right? They're lending money, bringing in interest. They're bankrolling restoration projects. But on the inside, spiritually speaking, they are bankrupt. They've lost everything. Jesus says, You're blind on the outside. They boast of their ability to help blind eyes see. And yet they themselves are blind to their spiritual condition. They can't see it apart from Jesus speaking to them. Jesus says, You're naked. You're naked, you have no clothes on. On the outside, they're wearing black wool Armani suits and drinking champagne. But spiritually, they are stripped bare and ashamed. They're shivering out like a homeless person in the cold with no clothes on. This is their real spiritual condition. Now, interestingly, again, with Laodicea, there's no external pressure. No one is trying to get them to do or believe anything. They are the victim of their own lack of dependence on God. Now, I want to draw a contrast here with someone else in the New Testament. Let's look at Matthew 15, 21 through 28. This will take just a minute, but I hope it'll be helpful. Matthew 15, 21 through 28 says this, and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, a woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So a couple things I want us to see about this passage and this woman's dependence on God. Look at the way that she addresses the Lord. At first she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Now she's a Canaanite. She's not even a person who was raised with all of the Bible stories that the Jewish people had about, um, about a Messiah that would come and would restore Israel. And yet, she knows enough to know that Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is the Messiah that, that uh, the Jewish people have been waiting on. And so she knows that he has power to help her in her time of need. And so she comes to him. She's dependent on him. She says, my daughter's severely oppressed by a demon. There's no one else around that can help me with this spiritual problem. Jesus at first doesn't answer her at all. He just turns aside, no answer. Disciples come to him. They're just like, will you please send this lady away? She is so obnoxious. She just keeps on coming after us about this problem. Jesus, uh, and, and then she uh, comes and, uh, and, and kneels before the Lord and says, Lord, help me. Even after he has he, he's replied to her, says, I was only sent to the, uh, to the lost sheep of Israel. He's making it sound like, you know what? I'm not gonna help you. I've got other things to do. And then Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I have been sent to Israel. That's my, that's my message. That's my, that's my mission. That's who, the ones that I have been sent to. And yet, this, this woman continues to press in and ask Jesus for help because she's dependent on him. She recognizes that he's the only one that can help her. And so she's willing to endure even this insult. This, this sounds bad to us that this lady is being called a dog by Jesus, but really, in their culture, it's even worse. A dog is the lowest of the low. And she's willing to say, you know what? Yeah, I, I am a dog. I am somebody who's outside of the covenant. I don't belong. I don't deserve to have you do this for me. And yet I believe that you have enough, that what you have, Jesus, is more than enough for the house of Israel. There's some left over, even for people like me, for people who need you and your, and your help. And so this woman is humble. She's willing to, to even call herself a dog in order to express her dependence on the Lord. She's saying, look, I don't have anything else. I need you, Jesus. She also understands her condition. She knows that no one else can help her. She knows who Jesus is, that he is the only one that can help her. Now, this is what is needed in Laodicea and what we as the church need today. Humble, dependent hearts that understand our great need, our great spiritual need, and how great a Savior Jesus is. This is the funny thing, isn't it, about the kingdom of God. It's upside down. It works the opposite way that our world works, doesn't it? In order to become rich in the kingdom of God, you have to realize your poverty. In order to become great in the kingdom of God, you must become the lowest of servants. In order to become wise in the kingdom of God, you must first admit that you are a fool. In order to gain your life in the kingdom of God, you must first lose it. So based on Jesus' assessment of uh, the spiritual health of the church at Laodicea, how is it possible that he says to them, come and buy? I counsel you to to buy from me gold refined by fire. What are they going to buy with? What are they going to buy from Jesus? How are they going to get anything from Jesus? What do they have that would be helpful? Jesus has already told them that they are poor, pitiable, blind, wretched, naked, all of these things. You see, the gospel says that if until we realize that we have no money, we will never be willing to receive the free gift of grace. Look at Isaiah 55, one with me. It says, come, everyone who thirsts, Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus says, I know. I know you don't have anything that is of value to me, spiritually speaking. And yet I will give to you something so that you can buy from me. It's like like you giving your kid money to buy a birthday present for you. They didn't didn't get that money. They didn't earn that money. It doesn't come from them. It came from you. You just bought yourself a birthday present. And yet that's what uh, Jesus is saying grace is like. We can buy even when we have nothing because of grace. So let's look. What does Jesus offer them? What does Jesus offer them? As he says, come and buy. He offers them refined gold, which means that the impurities have been taken out. It's it's been purified. That's something that only Jesus can do to refine our lives, to take the impurities out. Jesus offers them salve, eye salve. This is ironic, right? Because they're the people who have this medical center. And yet Jesus says, I've got the sight that you need. I'm the only one who can help you to see. Jesus offers them white garments. And if we read on in Revelation, we see how white garments come to be. Revelation 7:14 tells us that white garments only come by being washed in the blood of the lamb. And so Jesus is the only one who can give out these white garments. It's all grace, folks. This is why Jesus came and died on our behalf. Because we needed him to. It's why he rose again to provide these blessings and benefits to us. And it's essential for us, if we're ever going to grow in the Lord, that we embrace the truth of our sinfulness. The fact that we still have things to work on in our lives. I hope you didn't come into the, into the room this morning thinking that all of, the, all of the, the, the spiritual issues you had in 2022 magically vanished. Uh, when, when the clock struck midnight last night. Because there's still sin for you to put to death, amen? There's still ways in which you need to grow in Christ-likeness here in 2023. So what do we do? Our lives must be surrendered to Jesus. Let's look at verses 19 through 20. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. So this phrase, those whom I love, is pretty amazing, right? Because you think about it, who is Jesus talking to? He's talking to one of the most jacked up churches that he's spoken to uh, in this whole series of churches. And yet he speaks to them. Out of his love for them, this love is what motivates Jesus to, to reprove and correct. Now sometimes we as humans confront people uh, because we want to put them in their place. right We want to, to, to have a little taste of vengeance. So we will confront someone and we'll put them in their place. Other times, we refuse to confront others because it's uncomfortable to us. But Jesus motivated by love, approaches the Laodicean church. And he he speaks to them because he loves them. Look at Hebrews 12, uh, 12, verses 5 through 11 with me. The author of Hebrews says, "And, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the author of Hebrews is telling us here, look, don't be discouraged. If you're going through a difficult time and and God is, is correcting you, and it feels like, man, there's just so much in my life that needs, to be, that needs to be brought before the Lord and changed. I'm, I'm, I'm in just in need of so much work. He's saying, don't be discouraged. If God is disciplining you, it's because, number one, you're in his family. You're a part of God's family. So, of course, he's going to come to you and discipline you because he wants you to grow. He wants you to, to grow up, spiritually speaking. So, discipline has got to happen. What happens to a kid that's never disciplined? They never grow up, right? They're a mess. Parents have to discipline their kids if they love them. And our Heavenly Father is the same. Not only that, but discipline works in us the righteousness that God wants to achieve. Now, this passage um, that we're reading here uh, could be a summative statement, right? For, for, to most of the seven churches, to those, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, I don't know about you, but over the past uh, seven messages, I feel like I've been out behind the woodshed with Jesus, right? I mean, just he's just working us over. But the, but the reason is because he loves us. He sees the danger that we may find ourselves in. Not only do we want that, but he wants God honoring fruit from our church. So he reproves us, he warns us, and he offers us a chance to repent. So Jesus says, "Be zealous." and repent. This doesn't mean do 50 times the things that you were doing before, although some of us need to get up and and get moving uh, for the Lord. This is really about redirecting everything that we do towards the Lord. Being zealous is all about devotion. Scripture tells us, Matthew 6, 24, that no one can serve two masters. So either you're going to serve yourself, you're going to try to get all that you can out of this world for you, or you're going to look at your life and and say, what does Jesus get out of this today? How can my life be useful to him? How can it be a blessing to him? Now, man, this next verse, verse 20, really knocked me out when I was studying it, because it's one that is so familiar to us, especially if you've done any kind of evangelism uh, training in the past, right? You've heard this for, uh, the verse, behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is really not an evangelistic verse. In context, who's it being spoken to? It's being spoken to the church. It's written to Christians. As a matter of fact, a particular group of Christians who by depending on themselves have closed themselves off to the one person who can see them accurately and bring healing and restoration. They have shut the door on Jesus. So He is, He's knocking. This is a crazy verse. Do you realize that? This is I mean, to, to my understanding, I don't understand how this verse is in the Bible. Because Jesus is coming after these Christians that, that don't deserve it, honestly. Shouldn't they be knocking on his door instead? There's an amazing reversal here. Why is Jesus doing the knocking? Why are they not seeking him out? They're the ones with the problem. Uh, We see this throughout the New Testament, right? In Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 10, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, uh, he asks her for a drink of water. And uh, then Jesus answers her. when When she's talking back to him, she says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, you're the one who needs to be asking me for a drink. I have living water. I have something that you can't have on your own. Also, in Matthew 3, verse 14, John the Baptist realizes this. When Jesus comes to him to be baptized, it says John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He's like, Jesus, are you serious? You want me to baptize you? How about we switch places? I need some of what you've got. And yet here's Jesus in this amazing, stunning passage, seeking and saving those who have deliberately wandered away from him. Not only that, but look what he's doing. He's he's not coming into wreck shop. He says that he offers fellowship. He says, I'm going to come in and eat with you and you with me. He's offering them a meal. That's something that would have been reserved only for close friends. You'd never eat with someone in this culture that you didn't, uh, that you didn't feel a, a close relationship with. The other amazing thing about this passage is that it's a present tense promise to this church. It's not saying, I'm going to eat with you someday when I return. It's saying, no, if you will open the door to me, I will come in fellowship with you now. You can experience new life with me now. Our relationship can be restored now. You don't have to wait until someday. It's an amazing, stunning passage, isn't it? Well, our lives are supposed to find their end, to find their meaning in Jesus. Let's look at verses 21 through 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So who is the one who conquers in this letter? One who conquers is the one who repents of his self-satisfaction and declares his dependence on Jesus. Now, how did Jesus conquer? What did he do in order to to conquer, to, to finish his work? He embraced the cross, both in life and in death. He said, my agenda is not my own. My agenda is the agenda that's been set for me in eternity past, with the Father. That's what my agenda in life is. And of course, in death, Jesus physically gave his body for us because he centered his life on God and on his mission. Well, the Spirit is speaking to the church today. Ask yourself a couple of questions here. First, what is it that you're so satisfied with? What is it that you're so satisfied with that you are shutting Jesus out? Is it the approval of others? Is it being productive? Because, hey, the Laodiceans were doing some works. Is it gaining knowledge? Is it gaining your independence? Is it being independent? Are those the things that you're so satisfied with that you're shutting the Lord out? Because none of those things are sufficient to make us right before God. None of those things in and of themselves produces lasting joy. Second question, have we allowed earthly benefits to obscure our true spiritual condition? Have we allowed earthly benefits to obscure our true spiritual condition? Do we, like the Laodiceans, equate, hey, I'm doing well. My bank account looks good. I'm healthy. I'm strong with Spiritual righteousness, because that can happen. We can think that everything is good with us before God because everything is right in our circumstances around us. My third question is this. Where do we find ourselves saying, I got this, and acting independently of God? Let me tell you, in my counseling work, I have discovered that there is no more deadly phrase than I got this. If we begin to believe that we can do this life apart from God, we can find ourselves in all kinds of trouble very, very quickly. So where are you finding yourself today saying, I got this? God, you stay over there. I'll work on this. No problem. Because that is a problem. It's the problem that the Laodiceans are being chastised for. Jeremiah nine twenty three through 24, such a great way to end this message. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So as we look at this new year in 2023, Let's declare our dependence on the Lord and refocus everything that we are doing on his glory. How does Jesus benefit from this? How is he blessed by this that I'm doing? So that's for you if you're a Christian. If you have never placed your trust in Christ, man, let 2023, let the New Year's Day be a new day for you. If you've never placed your trust in the Lord, you need to see that your spiritual condition is wretched and pitiable. You need help. Sin has blinded you to your need for Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus came that blind eyes would see. Not only physical blind eyes during his earthly ministry, but that the blinders would be lifted off of us. That we would see ourselves in our true spiritual condition. And that we, like that that Canaanite woman, would come to Jesus and say, Have mercy on me, Lord. I need your help. And I can't stop until until I receive it. I need you. If you can see your need for that grace today, then receive it as a gift. Jesus offers it to you. He offers you the gift of fellowship if you will open the door to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this precious passage from your word. Lord, we thank you for the ways in which it still speaks to us today, especially in a materially affluent culture. Lord, where we've been given so many blessings, and benefits. And yet often we do not turn those things around and say, what can you get out of it, Lord? We're looking at ourselves. We pray that you would help our blind eyes to see today. Help us to see the ways in which we are keeping you outside, keeping you at bay. And Lord, may we receive you. May we receive your correction, that we would experience the fellowship that you offer to us graciously. In your name we pray, amen.